you're either good at money or bad at money. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you can't have a good financial future just because something was difficult in your financial past or you're in a bad financial present at the moment. Welcome to She Speaks How She Does It, a podcast about inspiring women to speak up and be heard. I'm your host, Elisa Freud, the founder and CEO of She Speaks. Each week, we give an amazing woman the platform to share their knowledge and advice on a topic impacting women while sharing insights from our community of quarter of a million women. Listen in each week to be inspired to speak up and be heard. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all having a great week so far. So today's show, we have a great guest, uh, one who uh, we have been working with at She Speaks for a while. She's an influencer, uh, an author, a journalist. Um, she hosts a podcast uh, called Money Confidential uh, for Real Simple. And this is Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez. She is somebody who has been writing and talking about money and as it, money as it relates to women and how women think about money for years. And And we wanted to have Stephanie on to talk a little bit about why women, why we feel the way we do about money. It is something that um, a lot of women don't love talking about money. It's something that we all know is very important. It's also something that regardless of who you are, male or female, that we can be very emotional about money. And what we talk about today is, you know, what are some of the things that um, make money such an emotional uh, thing? How do we take some of the emotion out of it? And how do we really start to think about making uh, some trade-offs um, so that we can live and and save and get the things that we want that money actually provides. So today's conversation, I think, is chock full of interesting um, ideas as well as tips for how you can get started if you have saved money, if you haven't saved money, um, but ways that you can really start to, if you've had issues with how you view money, how you can really change those habits. So with that, I'm going to jump into it. Here we go. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Well, I am so happy to be talking with you about this because money is a topic that we hear from women. uh, We hear about it from women all the time. It's a source of stress. It's a source of uh, anxiety, pride, so many emotions, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many things that are associated with how we feel about money. How did you get involved in this area of expertise? Well, to your point, money is always about so much more than numbers on a spreadsheet. It is about what we can afford to do or not do, what we can afford to provide or not provide, what we can afford to pursue or not pursue. And those are all the reasons I, like many other people who talk about money, became kind of obsessed with money because I felt like it was this limiting factor in my life. The money Mm. I didn't have was Mm. keeping me from 
the weddings I wanted to go to, the life I wanted to be living, the people I wanted to be there for and to support. And I was like, this is the worst, right? It wasn't that the process of budgeting itself or the process of understanding the basics of personal finance was hard. It was about making the numbers work in a way that fit with my lifestyle because I was living in New York City. I wasn't making a lot of money. And those are hard things to reconcile, even if you're great at tracking your spending, even if you don't spend any money on lattes, right? And so as I started to become more and more interested in money, what I started to find was it's all about these emotions that Mm -hmm. we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's about what does the way I spend or don't spend say about me as a person, as a provider, as an, as anything. I see this now in, in this podcast I, I host for Real Simple Magazine called Money Confidential, where every week a listener calls in and says, well, I, I, can't save for retire. I can't save for retirement because I'm saving for my kids' college education, and even if that doesn't make financial sense because they can borrow for college and I can't borrow for retirement, mm-hmm. well, so be it. Because I can't stand what it would say about me as a parent and as a provider to not help my kids in that way, even if it doesn't make financial sense. And so I think what I've been really interested in is kind of connecting these dots between the numbers on the page, the feelings, and how this shows up in the reality of our lives. Yeah. I I love that you brought that up because I cannot tell you how many times I have heard financial professionals say you can save for you can't you can't uh borrow, you can't borrow for retire- retirement yeah. but you can borrow right so so that that idi- that idea that i you know my kid could borrow for college but i can't borrow for retirement it does this thing, especially maybe for women, but I don't even know that that's necessarily the case. We are looking to put our children into better positions than maybe we had been in, right? So you telling me as a financial professional, let's say, hey, screw your kid, basically, you you got to take care of number one. Well, as a as a parent, as a mom, I don't think of me as number one. I think of them as number one. That is the rub, right? How much do you encounter this point of view with the people who you talk with? um, And, you know, you have lots of women who you're engaging with on this, on these topics. How much do you hear that? And then what would you maybe alternatively recommend as a way that we should think about that? I hear it from everybody. It's just Mm -hmm. that what their priority is, is different for each person. So even if you're not a parent, you know, it might not be the retirement savings versus college savings for you. It might be something else. It might be your dog. It might be, you know, something that you care about more than anything else. And so it's really hard than to just be like, well, this makes financial sense. Because at the end of the day, you're like, I don't care if it makes financial sense. I want to be able to support my kid or my dog or whatever it is for you. So can we, one, just acknowledge that that is your priority and then try to build 
a financial plan that honors those priorities while also honoring yourself. And so it's not really reasonable to say, well, again, don't save for your kid's college education at all if that's your number one priority. But can it be one to 2% of every paycheck while you contribute five to 6% to your retirement, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about neglecting or creating this false binary, choosing one or the other, I'm either this or I'm that. No. Mm. How do we make room, even if it's tiny, tiny steps, yeah. even if it's just a little bit, just to to honor all of those pieces? Okay. So as you're talking, I have to tell you what it's making me think is money, as we've talked about, is a, such an emotional topic. Because it's not about the necessarily the money itself. It's about what this money allows me to do. Yeah. And, and so what you're saying is we, and maybe this is part of the issue, right? Is that we as human beings are emotional about this. And that tends to almost make you feel like it's black or white. Like it's mm -hmm. one extreme or the other. But what you're saying is, I get it. Let's be nuanced. Let's not, let's be balanced in how we think about this because it doesn't have to be all one or the other. I mean, you're saying it really perfectly, right? It, there is so much gray and there, I hate anything that reinforces a binary. Like it's either this or it's that. You're either good at money or bad at money. What does that mean to be good or bad at money? I hear that all the time. I'm just bad at money. Well, what do you mean you're bad at money? Do you pay your cell phone bill? Yeah. Do you pay your rent? Yeah. Okay. So those are things you're doing, right? What are you doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, when they identify, oh, well, you know, I'm in a lot of student loan debt. Okay. Are you making your payments on time? Uh, yeah. Okay. That doesn't make you bad at money. That means college is expensive. And you might not be able to afford to pay for it with cash if you don't have a financial support system. It doesn't mean that you can't have a good financial future just because something was difficult in your financial past or you're in a bad financial present at the moment. Or if you have missed your payments, it again, doesn't make you bad at money. It means maybe you had a couple bad moments and some bad behaviors, but every day is an opportunity to have new and better financial choices and behaviors moving forward. Yeah. So again, getting away from this idea of binary or the idea of an identity, right? Like I'm either good at this or I'm bad at this. Identity is something we think of as fixed. It's who yeah. I am. Mm -hmm. I'm bad at math. I'm bad at this. No, you're not. First yeah. of all, so, second of all, these are these are things that we learn. I, I mm -hmm. talk about, you know, you've heard me say this before, but I talk about managing your money as a practice. Yeah. It's not something you do once and you check off a list and you're done with it forever. I think of it like going to a yoga class, right? You don't go to one yoga class and say, okay, I learned everything and I'm fit for life. No need to go to yoga ever again. No, it's a practice. You go on a weekly basis or several times a week and you get more flexible and you reach new positions and poses. And it's the same thing with money. So this idea that it's this fixed identity that you're either good at or bad at and you have to live with the consequences is a false premise. And yeah. also, even as you start getting better at it, like it's always going to be changing. Right. The world around you is going to be changing. You're going to be changing. The priorities are going to be shifting. And and so to your point, we need that nuance and we need to honor the gray spaces instead of just being like, oh, it's all black or white. Yeah. So um, 
Let's talk a little bit. I want to come back to some of your tips for people um, as it relates to this, but I want to first talk about the your this the personal relationship you have with ambition mm-hmm. and how that has changed over the years. Yeah, so uh, I've been writing about personal finance for a long time. And as I started writing more and more about money, and particularly through the framework of how women experience money and the experience of the pay gap and the wealth gap and the investing gap, what I started to see a lot of was this narrative that, you know, women just aren't asking for the raises that they need to be getting the equal pay they want, or women just aren't investing or women aren't doing this. And what I started to find that 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 wasn't really true. (laughs) What was happening was, you know, women were were expressing their ambitions. They were asking for raises. They were trying to seek promotions and seek leadership positions. But what happened is they would face backlash for doing so. Mm. And so that made me more interested in not just the money piece of it, that's obviously important, but this broader question of ambition and what it looks like to really lean into something and to pursue it in a world that wants to penalize you for doing so if you are a woman, if you're a minority, or you know this, this world in which there's so many of these biases still at play. And so what I found in my own relationship to ambition was growing up, it was seen as such a net positive thing. Like I grew up in the nineties. So it was like girl power and take your daughter to work day. I was really in that moment. And, you know, that translated then into my twenties, into the girl boss era. And what I started to see into my late twenties and my early thirties was all of a sudden this ambition that I had had that had been really supported and championed as I was growing up started to be seen as like, well, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, what's wrong with you that you have so much ambition still? Like why, you know, women are supposed to quote unquote prioritize, you know, that their families getting married again with this binary, right? Like to, you can't be a wife and be ambitious or be a mom and be ambitious. And again, it's setting up this false dichotomy that ambition for women can only go to a certain point or a certain age or in a certain role until it's seen as quote unquote less acceptable or unacceptable. And I started to feel that more and more. Um, and, and I would talk to my girlfriends about it. I'd be like, uh, are you guys experiencing this? Like all I'm being bombarded with is questions about when I'm going to have children. Uh, nobody has asked me anything about, you know, what I'm working on, what I'm interested in, the things I'm doing in my personal life and the things I'm passionate about. And they would be like, yeah, that happened to me too. Like my whole life, my mom was like, oh yeah, well you got to focus on school and get a good job. And now my mom's giving me a hard time for being the breadwinner in my marriage. So it's this really interesting shift in the way ambition has gone from really being championed to being something that's seen as a bit of a liability. And I've experienced that personally and I've started to report on how that manifests for other women more broadly. So that's what you call the ambition penalty. And I have to tell you, as you're talking, it resonates so much with me as a woman who grew up in a household where we were both the boys and the girls were told, 
do as well as you possibly can in school. If I came home with a grade that was not great, I got I got taken to task for it just as much as the 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 males in the house did. And then you get dumped out into the real world after you know, finishing all of your education and you recognize that, whoa, I was just told for the last 18 plus years that we all can do anything we, we set our mind to. We can all do just as well. And we should, we should all do just as well. But then you get that realization of the workplace where Women are making less money on average than men are, right? That's the gap, the wage gap. There's the wealth gap that you talked about because women just have not, they, we just do not have the same wealth that men do. So we, we then face this reality that is almost completely different than what we've learned for the first 18 plus years of our lives. And I've never really heard anyone talk about it that way uh, and I, I just think it's such a great point that we as women get, we are faced with that. You can grow up feeling like, okay, I have to do just as well. I have to exceed and, and, and excel. And then you get out into the real world and you realize that maybe the numbers are a little bit stacked against you in some areas that, that relate to money. Yeah, and and this is kind of why I started digging into this was what I what I started to see is I would report on the pay gap and the wealth gap and it, it was it was hard for me to reconcile as somebody who grew up in that girl power era how the numbers really hadn't moved in a decade or more. Right? There was this enormous gain in women's economic independence in in following the the 70s and into the early 80s with the women's movement a really big shift in labor force participation closing the wage gap um all kinds of metrics leadership and since then the gains have been like a trickle uh, from economic uh, gains to political gains to leadership gains. It's been so disheartening. And that's really what motivated me to try to understand well, what's really going on here. And what I came to find in my research and reporting is that so often, at least for like my whole life, this conversation has been framed as a woman's primary obstacle to economic power is herself, mm. that she's not asking enough. She's mm. not speaking up enough. She's not staying in the labor force without acknowledging that one, women are asking, they are speaking up, they're trying to commit to a workplace, but the workplace is punishing them when they do those exact things. So women who negotiate are more likely to be labeled aggressive and demanding. They're less likely than their male counterparts to receive promotions or raises they've requested. I've done an entire series of interviews who've, uh, with women who've had job offers rescinded, withdrawn when they negotiate the salary for the job offer they've already been given. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like, this has been a huge missing piece of the conversation. And what I think is really important is talking about these realities, not to discourage anyone from speaking up and asserting themselves. I think that stuff is important. But what I think we need to do is understand that 
it's a system and these organizations and these industries that continue to penalize women for the very behavior that they're expressing that they've been told to express to get ahead. Mm -hmm. And so we need to hold those systems accountable. And we need to talk about these things because what I found is in the aftermath of some of these experiences, for example, I, I was interviewing a woman and then she was like, oh, I, I had a job offer, I negotiated it, they took it away. And she thought it was just her. She thought it was something she had done. And she internalized it as this kind of self blame. And all of a sudden, had feelings of imposter syndrome, lack of confidence, things she had never experienced before until this happened to her because there was no dialogue about this broader phenomenon around her. And so she thought, well, it must just be me then. Mm -hmm. But if instead we understand this as something that sometimes happened because we still do operate within many biased, flawed um you know, sexist, racist systems, then we can collectively have this dialogue and understand that, you know, we're not alone in this. And one bad or two bad or three bad experiences doesn't say what's possible for us going forward and doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to negotiate again in the future. Yeah. Well, that is disheartening to hear that, that 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 it happens i'm not surprised but it's extremely disheartening and i think we have certainly seen the same thing that women in women are judged much more harshly uh than male counterparts in in both the political arena in the professional arena and and personally as well and 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 the implications of that for how we think about money and how much money we earn mm -hmm. is is a really is something that uh, that is that that is a downstream impact of of women being told, hey, stand up for yourself, but then going and doing so and 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 basically um, being kind of slapped down for doing that. Lots of lots of examples there, I'm sure. Um, what advice do you have? Uh, would you give to women who are feeling conflicted with their desire to be successful and this, the challenges that they might face socially um, as a result of that. I think it's really hard to sustain your ambition and continue you know, working in alignment with it if you don't have any kind of community where you feel safe and championed and expressing it. And so if you're not feeling like your ambition is supported in your workplace or even in your marriage. For example, there's a lot of examples of how the ambition penalty uh, manifests in relate personal relationships to, you know, breadwinning women tend to have um, more stressful marriages, more likely to be divorced, not because of something they're doing, but because, again, these are just broader cultural dynamics that really live by these outdated stereotypes of men should be this and women should be this. And so when you have any circumstance that is kind of counter to that narrative, it creates a lot of conflict. So I think it's really important to be in communities and spaces where you can talk about these things, talk about how it shows up. And so you can feel championed in the things that you 
you want for yourself without the shame, without being told you're too ambitious. I have a whole newsletter called Too Ambitious, and it was it was modeled on um, the response that uh, Kamala Harris was labeled too ambitious to be considered to be the be like the vice presidential pick for for Joe Biden, according to some of his advisors. That was reported out, and I was like, what does that mean? Like, in what world? is like some dude too ambitious. It's so gendered. And so I want to have spaces where it feels like there's no such thing as too ambitious, right? How can I create a space where everything that I'm working towards is not going to make people question like what's wrong with me, but really champion me and support me in getting there. So I think having those networks, having those conversations, seeking community with other people who can support you when you are facing experiences of backlash, um, that's really critical. So if some, let's say we inspire a woman um, to go ahead and start, start investing, start taking control of her finances, start for retirement, whatever it is, where, like, what is a good tip or two for where she can start? Mm. Well, in terms of taking charge of your finances, the, the first step for anybody is really just getting clear on what do you want your money to do for you? Remember how we talked about money being emotional? What I found is one of the reasons it becomes really hard for people to stick with what they know they quote unquote should do, like a budget or an investing strategy or whatever it is, is because like that's how they're framing it. Oh, I should be doing this. And nobody wants like operate on this like, oh, I should be saving money. I should be investing. Like that's not sexy. That's not fun. No, but what if instead I want my money to build me a life where I can work four days a week on flexible hours, or I can afford to send my kids to college and then we can take the summer off and vacation in Europe or whatever it is, right? We have to tie the emotions into it if we're going to see results. If we're just tracking our numbers and if we're just trying to set up savings plans and investment accounts and we're not psyched about it, it's going to be really, really, really hard to follow through. So you, you know, I talk about money being emotional, sometimes being a challenge, but it can also be a tool. If we bring the emotion into it, it can keep us motivated and share that with other people. You know, if you are in a partnership, get your partner on board. Yeah, I, I had so, somebody I interview, interviewed recently. She was talking about, oh, she's getting married and she's not really sure how to combine finances with her partner. And I and she wants to know how to start. And I mm -hmm. told her this exact thing. I think you should have a conversation about what you want your money to do for you. And she said, I really don't even know what my husband wants his money to do for him. And they're getting married. They're getting legally married. Like it's wild to think that we don't have this kind of conversation with our partners or ourselves, to be right. honest. Right. So I think that's the most. Okay. So as you're saying, we need to get focused and thoughtful about what we want our money to do for us, mm -hmm. what we want it to allow us 
or enable us to be able to do because that's what it is ultimately, right? It's yeah. like, it's not about the $100. It's like, what can that $100 enable me to do? Exactly. Um, but what it also makes me realize is that that requires a certain degree of self-awareness mm-hmm. that we hear women, women tell us, this is a recurring theme, Stephanie, that women are struggling with self-awareness. So we might, for example, know that we are in a bad mood. We're not sure why we're in a bad mood. We're like, though, though, but, and that expands to so many things, right? Yeah. Let's say I get this great advice from you that I should take a step back and say, what do I want to be able to do with this money? What do I want it to afford me the opportunities to do? Thinking about it from an experience standpoint, all of that. But I'm not tapped into my self-awareness that well. Do you have any advice for how someone can start with that? Uh, It's such a great point. It's such a great point. One thing I like to ask people is, uh, well, first of all, I want to just assure everybody that like whatever vision they have for them, their future, and when they answer this question for themselves, like inevitably it's going to change. So it's not for me getting like totally married to a single idea of what I want my money to do for me. It's just creating a vision that gets me excited enough to follow through on some kind of financial plan that's going to position me for a better future no matter what I decide. And I am very into goals changing, the vision changing, and realigning as needed. But I think just, again, that practice of thinking long term, thinking bigger picture and connecting the emotions to the numbers on the page is important, no matter if the vision is accurate or not. It's almost irrelevant. But what I would say is if you're really struggling to get clear on that vision, what I always like to think about is like, how do I like to spend my time and what gets me excited? And I think sometimes when I'm, and I, I honestly experience this a little bit myself, like I'm in my mid thirties, I'm debt free. I don't necessarily want to buy a house or, um, I don't know if I want to have kids. Like there's so much that I don't know, but I do know how I like to spend my time. And so what I try to do is map out like an ideal day and, or like a series of ideal days or months or what feels good to me. And one thing I like to do is take naps. So like, how do I get to a place where I can work and live where I'm not like married to a nine to five schedule that doesn't allow for the flexibility for me to kind of take my naps and work out in the middle of the day? And what does it look like to have a financial foundation that supports all of that. And, you know, it sometimes isn't something as clear as I want to buy this house and it's $750,000. Sometimes it's like, I just want afternoons where I can pick my kids up from school. So they're not having to go to aftercare. Okay. So like start with what you do know. And as you continue to check in with yourself and how you care about spending your time, you'll learn more along the way. Right. And so then you can integrate that into your financial plans too. I think that's great advice because what it does is it makes us understand that it's just these things are frequently a point in time. Mm -hmm. What we want now may not be what we want five years from now or 10 years from now, but there is value in going through the exercise now and saying, okay, what do I want right now? 
even if it changes. It doesn't have to be like etched in stone. Exactly. And, and, and not only is the, the change happening to where you're headed, it's also happening to where you are, right? Mm -hmm. So like, this is where it comes back to the idea of money as a practice and something you have to do on a regular basis because if the last two years taught us anything, it's that like all our plans can go up and smoke pretty quickly. So the idea that like we shouldn't even start planning until we have some certainty about either the future or tomorrow it is wild because there is no such thing as certainty anymore, right? So we have to start with where we are and where we're at now in terms of our priorities, our goals for the future and our reality today. And if tomorrow I lose my job, then I need to reassess, but it doesn't mean it's still not worth planning today. Oh, that's such great advice. So Stephanie, if people want to follow you and be a part of all of the great advice that you are sharing, what is the best way for them to do that? So for the money stuff, I host a podcast called Money Confidential for Real Simple Magazine. And I also have a newsletter called Too Ambitious, where I share stories uh, about the ambition penalty first person accounts from women who've experienced it. So you can check that out at ambition.bulletin.com. Stephanie, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I learned a lot and I hope um, that our audience can take away some great kernels from this. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to She Speaks How She Does It. We hope that this episode inspired you in your own experience and path towards success. Be sure to like and subscribe to follow our series of conversations. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. So join the conversation at She Speaks Up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. You can also join She Speaks at SheSpeaks.com. Thanks for listening. We look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for listening. If you're an influencer or a brand that wants to work with us, please feel free to email us at info at Until next time.